the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Live with good old Chalcedon Q&A and Meet of the Word. I'm Martin G. Sobretti. I'm here broadcasting from Georgetown, Texas. And this is the time during the week when we take questions from our interested listeners, our supporters, and uh, move along and try to answer them the best we can without tripping up on our own tongue. And uh, it's good to have you all. Sorry we didn't have Mark's message coming in today. There was a uh, change in plan. He was in Utah. And so that's one reason why we did not have a broadcast from Chalcedon Chapel. Uh, but I believe he will be resuming next week, as his usual schedule. And, uh, well, of course, there's that event coming up next week, isn't there? I need to remind everyone that there's a, uh, a Northwest uh, meetup that is occurring in Los Altos, I think, California. And we are uh, certainly drawing attention to that, uh, both on the Chalcedon Facebook feed and at chalcedon.edu. Hey, Charles, good to have you here, and Jessica Lynn. So, the um, also another event coming up, sorry for the reverse image, is that we're going to do a Book of the Month Club on the Mythology of Science by Rush Dooney, and that happens tomorrow. It's your last chance to get signed up for that. I'll be leading that along with Andrea Schwartz. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we notice here that uh, Ground Control is alerting us to the fact that there are fires in the Vallecito area uh, that pose a potential threat, and we ought to also be praying for a Chalcedon uh, through that, that they would uh, survive and um, come through untouched, that the fires would be abated and head in a different direction. Uh, those kind of fires are known to jump the fire lines that have been meticulously built by the uh, firemen and those laboring out there to block the damage and the destruction of it. So, right, thank you. There's the registration for the uh, Book of the Month Club. Uh, it reminds me about the fire that we had a, a 50th anniversary of a uh, Chalcedon event here in Austin, and Mark was scheduled to come on down and uh, speak at it and appear. And as uh, he's flying in to his um, uh, connecting city, he learns that uh, the flames are threatening the area that the uh, Chalcedon compound is located at. So he had to reverse directions and head back to uh, to Vallecito to be there on the ground and, um, in case the worst happened. Uh, and we were prayerful about that. We, uh, we had prayers there in Austin and, of course, across the country for those who are aware of the disaster. I was even posting pictures of the proximity of the fire to the, uh, the Vallecito compound. So it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, even though the library, for example, is made of cinder block, it doesn't mean that a stray ember can't sneak through and ignite things. So... Uh, a hazard to be protected from and therefore coverage from God's would be appreciated. So uh, please do be in prayer about that. Uh, I think I've covered the two events that are coming up, the one tomorrow, the one coming up the next weekend. 
uh, right, conditions can change quickly. We were um, blessed by God last time around when this happened, and uh, we, we pray that we will uh, similarly ride it out, ride out the storm, as it were, uh, and, and be safe from harm in, in terms of our, of our physical plant. I'm going to adjust this a little bit because it looks like I could be crooked. Anything's possible with this iPhone camera. I think that's a little better. All right. It's bad enough my theology is crooked, and for the image to be crooked at the same time, terrible. Okay, so we had um, five questions pop in online uh, in advance, and if you want to ask your questions online, send or email your rather your uh, inquiries for Calcedon Q&A to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Ground Control just uh, put up the event page for the meetup, uh, and if you're anywhere in the vicinity uh, on those dates, they're going to try to wire me in uh, from a remote. I'm going to be broadcasting a uh, talking head on a screen uh, to the folks there and uh, having a, some interaction. We'll see what the technology does for us. Sometimes we can do some very um, interesting things, <laughs> sorry, kooky things. But uh, everyone uh, gives grace in these situations. Now, the first question was probably the one of the most controversial ones I've received in a while. And uh, it is this, is it sinful, with the parentheses, outside of God's will, in parentheses, for couples to decide they will not have children? Uh, which I assume to, mean, assume to mean not have any children versus having, uh, restricting, saying, okay, we already had three, and that's enough, say. So this actually uh, drives back to a whole different set of questions entirely. Uh, hidden underneath this question uh, is a can of worms, if you will. And we have to kind of unpack the can of worms carefully so we can get them all back in the can by the end of the, the process. Otherwise, what will happen is that we take one piece out and there will be attention focused on that to the exclusion of the other pieces that make a systematic presentation. And if we do that, we're not going to arrive at the truth. We're going to arrive at a lot of emotion. We're not going to have light. We're going to have a lot of heat uh, and, and dark heat at that, not the kind of heat that actually is useful in terms of zeal. Uh, but rather um, condemnations and uh, imprecations and all sorts of things that we would uh, hope would not prevail when we're trying to resolve a question that deserves our attention. So let's also uh, speak to the fact that there's a cultural situation going on of late. Uh, the last century has been marked by the rise of the notion that um, whatever the biblical position is, it's, it's evil and humanism uh, and dehumanizing to women. Uh, for example, uh, when uh, my late wife Darlene, prior to becoming a Christian, she was at the uh, University of Ohio, and she minored in feminine studies. And one thing she explained to me was that the uh, the thing that was hammered home by the professor was, uh, and this was class after class on this topic, was that uh, the Christian position uh, reduces all women to breeders, and they even use that word. And to become a breeder was to forsake your status as a woman uh, and uh, all your prerogatives, if you will. So this was seen as a term of contempt, and they were taught, the students in the university, I'm sure it's not just University of Ohio, I believe it's countrywide, nationwide, perhaps even worldwide, taught contempt for anyone who was a quote-unquote breeder. It's a term of contempt. Let's, let's be honest about it. Uh, when uh, books are written like this one on my shelf here called Quiverful, what did this attack on Christian Reconstruction or certain aspects of Christian Reconstruction, I should say, because it's, uh, it doesn't really um, fully take account of, of a nuanced position at all. But it's certainly going out after certain uh, forms of it. 
And why did he, this lady pick this title, Quiverful, as she uh, went her ways and did her uh, investigative journalism, uh, speaking to people in this movement? It's because of that notion from Psalm 127, bless the man whose quiver is full, and the notion that a woman is not realized and fully um, a woman unless uh, and satisfied God's requirement for her life unless she is, of course, uh, provided a quiver full of children to her husband. Uh, and uh, now I've actually critiqued this book in the report. Yeah, it was an article in Faith for All of Life, uh, Patriarchy versus Feminism. Um, Ground Control may want to put up the link to that to indicate that the positions taken by the Quiverful book and the folks that are uh, critical of this position don't actually match up with, uh, say, Dr. Rashduni's position on, on these things. And in other words, they are straw man attacks uh, by and large. They're trying to swing the pendulum. Now, as a result of them swinging the pendulum and Christians seeing how far they're swinging the pendulum, to treat children as a negative thing, in other words, as a, uh, a deficit, it uh, mirrors really what is said in the movie The Matrix when one of the, the Agent Smith tells the human being, you know, people are a virus and we're the cure for the virus. We're getting, going to control this virus. Uh, and so this notion that the children are not a blessing but rather something else uh, motivates them. You know, they're suddenly a drag, a, a burden on a woman and she's, uh, that's why abortion flourishes. We can, women are very happy to remove these alleged burdens, even if it takes murder to do it, because they are free, except, of course, their conscience tells them very much different. Uh, now they're oppressed with, with the uh, knowledge, suppressed knowledge of what they've done. But s setting aside that entire issue, uh, what happens when we have this notion circulating that uh, children are not a blessing but a burden? Uh, of course, then people are going to want to solve that problem, and they solve this problem by taking control of the womb. Now God, by the way, does control the womb. Let's make it very clear. Uh, God predetermines everything that's going on with the womb. He can close the womb, the matrix of the womb. Uh, he, there's places where he actually does this judicially. It's mentioned in the book of Numbers. Uh, and uh, other times when he opens and blesses the fruit of the womb. So what man is doing oftentimes is to um, interfere in this process, uh, if you will, and sometimes one can justify it, perhaps biblically, but sometimes not. These are areas where there's very little um, wisdom being applied. I'm going to give an example. I have Ground Control has a, a link that I'm going to have them post up, which is for the uh, Journal for Biblical Ethics in Medicine. Uh, it's about, uh, they ran for at least eight years because they have eight published years worth of their articles. And uh, it's excellent material. Uh, Dr. Edward M. Payne uh, is one of the ones who spearheaded the journal in its heyday. And it gives a lot of important information on uh, what is motivating things, what is going on in the medical profession. That's slightly dated because I think they uh, finished publishing sometime before the year 2000. Nonetheless, they're a very consistent run and had a whole bunch of Christian doctors uh, and, and medical professionals weighing in on these questions on bioethics. And so I'd like to see something like this re be restored and come back to play. We would have the benefit of another 20 years of th stuff that we could comment on and give direction on in regard to this. So all this to show that it does take some legwork to give a proper position. So now let's wind this all the way back to the basic commands in Scripture. And we usually start with uh, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, 28. Uh, and this is repeated in Genesis 9, 7. Now what's interesting is that there are only two people hearing it the first time it's mentioned. 
uh, Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. When this is reiterated in, um, and, and by the way, the commands there are plural. You both be fruitful, you both multiply. It is uh, not uh, just directed to one of them or them as an individual, but rather collectively. And you can almost show this from the fact in G Genesis 9-7, look at what happens, uh, to eight people is being told, be fruitful and multiply. Now, there's no indication that um, Noah had more children other than the three that he had. But his children certainly got the message. And so, again, it's a plural thing. And they're to now re replenish the earth. Apparently, the earth had been filled. In fact, it was filled with violence and all sorts of evil. Uh, and now, it's, and then God raised it to the ground by flooding it. And now we're going to start brand, brand new over again. And now the command is issued again. Let's refill it back up the way it was. So what happens sometimes is that we, we ignore the fact that this was a collective thing that Obviously, Adam and Eve were not individually going to fill the entire world with four billion people. Uh, they would have to have children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and all this way, all the way through to Noah's generation. And then that was wiped out, and we start over again with uh, Ham, Japheth, and uh, Shem. So there's a lot going on in this passage uh, in terms of what, what is, is being achieved and how it's achieved. The, the filling of the earth and the multiplication of the fruitfulness is a generational thing. It is not a one-shot. This is kind of the, the problem, is that if we're going to have, um, and this was the complaint to the Quiverful people, who are uh, critics, I should say, who wrote the book Quiverful, is that the womb is being now a zone for war. We're having the war of the womb. And uh, this creates uh, a, a friction even among Christians, unfortunately. Uh, and why is that? I think there's a fundamental problem as we analyze these things, is that the argument is we need to have quantities of kids. We need more and more children, more children, better, better, more is better. If, if some is good, more is better. As opposed to quality, is, are you better off having one John the Baptist or uh, a brood of vipers you've raised? Uh, and these are very, very good questions to, to ask because the scripture does not pit one against the other and say, no, quantity is more important than quality. Uh, rather, the children to be raised and to become quivers in a righteous, uh, or errors in a righteous quiver, not just merely, merely raw existence. So one needs to also be aware that one has obligations. Hey, Diane, good to have you from Chicago. One has obligations when have children. Uh, now I don't see these as burdens, but these are pr privileges and responsibilities uh, that God gives us because we have uh, we're made in His image, and therefore we are made to be responsible. And we are made to raise our children in the way they should go. So we should never detach the quality from the quantity. Once we do that, we're uh, in a world of hurt. And we're elevating one thing at the expense of the other when both are important. Uh, if we are not able to raise children properly in the nurture and admission of the Lord, are we still supposed to have as many children as we can and hope that someone else evangelizes them? Uh, these are interesting questions because, of course, this does in fact happen. Uh, a lot of folks are having children and uh, that... Uh, we can raise all sorts of uh, objections to them, except for the fact that now they're part of our mission field. As such, now we have another thing, to, and this is exactly what happened with the Christians in the early um, period of Rome and the birth of the early church. You know, Rushton, you would always talk about that the uh, um, the way that abortion was done was the baby that was born that it was not wanted would be laid over there by the bridge by the river, and then the Christians would come and collect them and adopt them and raise them as their own. So here's someone else's unwanted children becomes a wanted child by adoption into the Christian faith. So how the church grows and how the uh, population of the world 
continues to expand, uh, is an ongoing enterprise. If you're saying, well, we're going to win this battle through the womb, uh, it seem, seems to think that this conflicts a little bit, certainly, with the essence of Zechariah 4, 6. You know, by, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The, the victories are going to be spiritual victories and not uh, biological or genetic or hereditary victories. Uh, th it's a complete misunderstanding of how God operates in the world. So sometimes we're elevating certain things because we have a verse or a part of a verse or an understanding of a verse, and then we elevate this. Now what actually happens with nations where um, they go through this, this process, and this is happening in Europe in particular. Uh, in 1995, I had a college class in, in geography, and we were studying the demographic problem. And when certain nations are early in their growth time, they have a very, very large uh, birth rate. And boom, uh, the shifts. And when a nation gets relatively mature and goes into a situation where the net birth uh, population is dropping, population is dropping because of some an interesting factor, is that this entire time we've been talking about birth, we haven't been talking about death. Now think about this. When the original command was given to Adam and Eve, there was no death in the world. So they would have been, as they multiplied, they would have stuck around to see their grand-grand-grand-grand-grand-grandchildren you know, uh, uh, because they would not have died had uh, things gone according to a national plan. Uh, so far as what the command was was concerned, you know, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the command was given in a sinless state, and death was not a reality. And death isn't very unnatural thing. It's the, it's the severing of soul from spirit. And so what happens now is that death is in the picture, and that changes things. Uh, and it changes things in a way, in other words, death complicates, sin complicates everything, and death, which is the fr uh, fruit, the... Um, the wages of sin uh, complicates the picture. So what happens is the death rate will exceed the birth rate, and Denmark's population, at least in 1995, is going to be dropping. I'm, I haven't checked it recently, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's still the case, depending on what their immigration statistics are. So then a nation shrinks in size, which is the opposite of being fruitful and multiplying, right, and filling the place. They're kind of shrinking, and their dominion uh, is going to shrink as a result. So what, is this, what does death have to do with everything? Well, it's like this. Uh, you can fill the world, and lo and behold, uh, de God can just easily unfill it. God, God kind of has a break on things. Uh, in fact, that's kind of the reason that death exists in the first place. You know, my spirit will not always strive with man, as he points out. Uh, so there's a point in time where, where God calls and quits uh, and, and calls people home. So the fact that death exists at all and is controlled by God uh, is a factor in the filling of the earth, or the replenishing of the earth, or anything related to do with, with quiverful self, because God's in control of the womb, he's in control of death. If you're not con convinced, Jesus asserts in the book of Revelation, you know, the, the keys of death and Hades are mine. They're given to the Son of God, and he takes total control of them. They're in his fist. And so he's the one who's in charge of those things, and therefore he can balance out the nations. Uh, he has a say-so in this thing. So the mission, therefore, of the church uh, and individual Christians is to uh, take dominion. And then, so to me, that is a qualitative thing insofar as dominion is conceived of as taking every thought captive to be into Christ and uh, more and more of the nations of the world walking in the light of his law and according to his gospel uh, and, the, uh, and 
being obedient to the gospel, as to put it in Paul's phrasing from Romans 1 and Romans 16. So that's what the mission is, and the fact that death has a part to play is going to be adjusted, actually, in a way. Think about it. In the passage, famous one in Isaiah 65, 17 and following, the um, lifespans start to expand back out past Methuselah, ultimately, um, and people who die at age of 100 are considered to have died very, very young and cursed at having died so young, and sinners, in fact. So there are a lot of things going on here that need to be uh, uh, dealt with. So then what do we do with what all this biological stuff, you know, medical procedures uh, that often come into play uh, to control fecundity, um, another term for being fertile. Uh, or infertile. We obviously all know and agreed that to murder uh, a, um, a human being, which is from, starts from conception forward, is a murder and an evil act and, and is worthy of uh, the death penalty. Uh, so until the, the nations of the world see uh, abortion for what it is, and some of them actually do, they just don't care it's murder, uh, they just are creating a brand new ethics, uh, scientific ethics as opposed to biblical ethics. I'll be talking about this tomorrow when at the Book of Month Club I'll be talking about the mythology of science. That under science, everything is under man's control, and man controls man, uh, and that means one man controlling another, and that can mean forced contraceptivization of water, which Rushdie actually talks about in an article you know, from uh, one of the magazines and the books that he studied, where they're advocating putting contraceptives in water and then selectively allowing certain people to breed. And this, is, this book was written in 1967 you know, 40 years ago, <laughs> and they still already had these plans in, in place you know, 50 years ago, come to think of it. Uh, so the the point is, man man's propensity to play God has never been at its uh, any higher than it is now, and uh, his uh, chutzpah and his hubris and all these other words that we used indicate his arrogance and his sinning with a hand and a presumptive sin is at maximum. This is where it gets very interesting. There's many cases where a couple, say, opts for a vasectomy. And lo and behold, a year after the vasectomy is performed, the husband is fertile again. Recanalization has occurred. <clears throat> God has actually healed uh, the uh, vas so that it's reconnected again. The plumbing is fixed that had been severed. So what God put together, man took apart, God put it back together again. And it's, lo and behold, a child has occurred. And there's a pregnancy on that uh, you would have thought would not have occurred, you see. So, and so by the same token, God can prevent um, actions. For example, um, fertility in, in males really depends on, on temperature considerations. Uh, and uh, those temperature considerations can shift depending on, say, the condition of the blood vessels. You know, just as this known thing called a varicose vein, as you probably have heard on people's legs and stuff. There's such a one in the, uh, the, the where, where the uh, the seed of the man is is stored, and that's known as a varicocele, and that's a blood vessel that's swollen and creates too much heat, and therefore that man essentially is is not not going to be fertile, or because the quality of of, of this of the what he's producing is not going to be up to snuff. Uh, that can be resolved with an operation, and a lot of people do that. They go ahead and get the operation. And, and say, because I want to have children, so I want to overcome this fact. Now, is that fair? Is that right? Now they're saying, I want a medical procedure to alter what God has set in motion, which is I have this swollen blood vessel, which prevents me from having children. And uh, now the doctors have a mechanism to correct that. Uh, and nowadays, in fact, most vasectomies are reversible. So people change their minds and say, actually, now I think I want to... 
I, I think better of it. And, it. and they want to have the way out. They want to have the flexibility, if you will. Now, all this is playing God after a fashion, but what do we say about the person who is now uh, corrected that put the, um, the corrective surgery involves something rather unique? It's called an occluding coil, <laughs> uh, and it's inserted way up high in the chest in order to make someone uh, shrink that blood vessel that's too large, and boom, that person is now, that male is now fertile and can have children, which was not the case before the operation. Now, what is it fair after you have some children to then have that including coil removed or have a vasectomy? What do we do? Because in other words, modern technology is such so advanced that we can move so quickly, way ahead of our ethics, way ahead of our understanding of what is right and wrong. As Isabel said, we're so interested in what can be done, we don't worry about what should be done. And this is where theology is way behind. Christian theology is way behind in this. So we're not looking at the whole picture and being nuanced. Especially when we have a question here specifically that um, is it a sin when something's out of God's will? Now, there are a lot of things that are in God's will. For example, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. So there it is right in Scripture. Paul says it, Thessalonians, I think. God's will for you is that you be sanctified. If you're not sanctified, are you in sin now? Uh, and so you need to repent of that. Well, how are we going to get around that fact? Because sanctification is a process. So uh, simply because something is out of God's will, does it elevate that to a transgression of law? Remember, Sin is the transgression of God's law. And uh, so now we're saying well, it's God's will is this, 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 this. Do those represent normative standards? By and large, they do. And I'm actually going to talk about this when I get to the fifth question, which is about redemptive historical theology. Uh, because sometimes those, uh, those are usually excuses for not obeying God's law. Because we have 613 commandments, and they are some concern to us. And we also have things that God sets in motion which are in samples or examples unto us for how we should conduct ourselves, uh, or what our basic direction ought to be. And uh, the scripture was not given in vain in any of these cases. We should know the heart of God, uh, and it's revealed in how he deals with his people through scripture. This is where theologians can come together and work. But by and large, what happens is that each one has a already a predetermined point of view. In other words, the assumption is we have all the information we need to make a decision, and we should just now attack each other for the other guy having the, holding the wrong view. Now, that may or may not be true, but neither, ha neither have we sifted all the information biblically, applied it in a theologically systematic way, and gone forward and explained it all. So instead, what we are in a position to do is to condemn. We're really good at that, and you don't need a lot of information to condemn people. You just need a, a slogan verse, a proof text. And the fact that it might be pulled about a context or that there might be extenuating factors for that proof text doesn't matter. Uh, now, all these things to be said, the general pattern is this, that in fact uh, people marry and children do come forth from that. And, uh, and you should raise, have as many children, uh, certainly that, and you are to raise them all in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a given for Christians. Now, once we get past this point, then we have a lot of complications. And uh, that's where direction needs to come from. Direction needs to come from theology, from an understanding of what God requires. And, and I think what will happen then is that we're not going to be on the side of the, of the critics of Quiverful who, who uh, prefer the children, that, that women have no children at all, unless they absolutely want one, and why would you want one, they think. But, and then the other side is you know, should have uh, burn out the woman and have you know, as many children as humanly possible. Uh, because if uh, that's the calling, then why should there be a limitation on it, right? So now you have these two extremes lifted, put together. Sometimes one side makes the, ex the other, uh, the other side with the extreme and vice versa. 
You know, when people say you want no children ever, you want to really drop the population of the Earth to maybe three million people total, and you want to get rid of seven billion people, and they might say, "Yeah, we do." <laughs> yeah, because we 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 think people are a virus again, as um, the movie points it out. And the others, and then the, of course the other side says, "And you want to turn every single woman into a breeder." This is a case where the pendulum is swinging very, very wide, very, very fast, and people are getting hit by it yeah, as it swings. Because one thing that a Christian's going to do is, is uh, we're, we're prone to this, is rather than to reach out and, and build foundations for a better understanding of the, what's at stake in Scripture and what each family needs to do uh, or ought to do or in wisdom would do, uh, we rather move too quickly to the argument of kill and um, lay down laws based on what we believe are the teachings of Scripture or at least God's example in it. And that's what I'm saying. Take a closer look at some of these commands and how they would have played out in reality. Uh, how many children did Adam and Eve have? Well, we certainly had the first one that out the gate, Cain, was a murderer. So we had a bad start. Abel was a good guy, but he didn't last very long. His blood speaks from the ground, though that's mentioned even in Hebrews. So uh, we finally get a third child out, and obviously some daughters have been born to him which aren't mentioned in the text, but they're there. And that's why we had the ability for them to multiply and oh, more children to arise. So we start with a very, very grim start, a tough start. But they would have been alive had uh, they followed through with, with God's plan, which they did not. Rather, sin entered the world and through sin, death. And now death is a factor, and birth rates and death rates are now a concern for all generations. Especially when you are, people want to retire and say, where's my retirement money? Where's my Social Security in America? And, uh, there's, and uh, they're saying, well, you know, we decided to cut down the birth rates <laughs> and we've uh, murdered so many millions uh, through abortion, so uh, we might have to cut your uh, Social Security check. <laughs> Uh-oh, how'd that happen? You see, no one is thinking through all the aspects all the way. So it takes uh, folks that would have the patience to deal with these questions and then reopen them all for a better sifting of the data. So it's, it's a complicated question. So because if you're supposed to be fruitful, how do you set the threshold of how many children are too much or too little? Uh, did um, Abraham only had two children that we were aware of? Was that a problem? You know, Isaac and, and Ishmael? Uh, we have other examples, you know, we were not aware of any brothers or sisters for John the Baptist, but he was the greatest uh, of all the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus even pointed out that to him, and yet he probably was an only child. So there's interesting questions that are raised here. That's why I think if we're going to raise this debate, we should not center it only on quantity of children, also on the quality of the children, the character of the child. That's important too. Uh, that's why even Paul makes a kind of an interesting parallel discussion. Either I have five words that are understood than a thousand that aren't, right? So uh, better to have one child who's godly, that would seem to think, than three that you've raised to be demons, if we will. Uh, that's an interesting point to be uh, argued. I'm not saying once for all what the answer is. I'm saying that all these questions are on, on the ground for us to grapple with. Instead, we trample them down and attack each other as opposed to saying, let's actually roll up our sleeves and see what we can uh, glean from studying Scripture from one end all the way to the other. What is the relationship of death to the birth rate? What is death doing? God's controlling that. God's controlling the birth rate. God controls the womb. Uh, when we attempt to uh, control the womb, is that legitimate? We know it was not legitimate in one case for sure. 
and Onan, who was obligated under the Liberate, uh, liberate uh, um, legislation to raise up uh, children for his deceased brother, uh, he did not. He uh, refused to do that. And this ended up with a curse upon him because he wouldn't raise up for his brother the seed that is God required to maintain his brother's household. So that is a huge, huge problem. Uh, so we have at least one example where an obligation was laid out by God's law specifically. It wasn't argued from Genesis one twenty eight or Genesis 9-7. It was argued from uh, the law itself, the law proper. It wasn't a creation ordinance. It was a mosaic ordinance that was violated, and that's why uh, Onan was cursed for that violation. Since there we have cases of just such a curse for failing to bring a child into the world, into the world uh, we should also take that seriously too. Because you can't just say, well, everyone's off the hook for having children. Not under Old Testament law, under the Liberate, when they were obligated to have the land in possession. It was a way of cursing your brother to not raise up a child for them. The option, by the way, would have been to adopt somebody had there been someone available for that purpose. But that was not Onan's uh, calling. Onan's calling was to provide a child for his dead brother, and he refused to do it. So here we have uh, case law, which does in fact have teeth in it, which indicates that there is at least one instance where that became a problem and that God took it very, very seriously. Uh, Onan's uh, failure here it was a sin for sure. Not only did it violate the will of God as laid out in his law, it was expressly a transgression of the commandment. And so we have something clear. So we then sift through all the scriptures that have the, from the clear to the unclear. We try to interpret the unclear with the clear. We look at the bigger picture and then we can come up with an answer for that. I believe that that answer needs to be worked out better than it has in the past because we oftentimes land at a position without having taken all the evidence into account. And that means that the pendulum is simply still going to swing again once the inf new information that has been ignored or neglected gets brought into play. And that's a problem. We need to bring all the evidence into play and to my knowledge it has not all been put on the table at one time. The closest people who did that was again was this journal of uh, biblical ethics and medicine, and that was simply doctors talking. Uh, and some of them are theological astute, and some uh, different different calibers, different uh, of people working on the question. But at least they tried. But there is no more journal of biblical ethics and medicine. So now we don't have the benefit of them except their historic voice, which still speaks. If you plug into that link that we provided earlier in our discussion, and plug in and see what they had to say. And then we can weigh these issues. And we can take that with direct, Dr. Reshtuni's discussions on this point uh, and other, other people's discussions. It's very fun to say, uh, oh, yeah, we, we're going to um, outbreed our enemies, right? And we'll, have, we'll have five children each or six children each, and the, and the humans will have one or two children each. And at the end of the game, we have a converted world. And that's not quite how it works because it's all by the spirit, not merely by the fact. Again, that's kind of that quality versus quantity issue. Don't have one without the other. The blessing, of course, would be a bunch of children that are all devout followers of Christ who obey his law and are a blessing to their parents, uh, as opposed to a burden and a grief to their parents. Certainly, uh, the patriarchs of the Old Testament knew what it was to have an Esau who was a grief to their, <laughs> their parents, who could not believe what his choices were, uh, Rebecca and Isaac. Uh, it was a grief of heart to them. So it's a problem. So my answer is... Uh, we don't have all the evidence in front of us. We have a bunch of impartial pieces of the puzzle and a lot of people raising strong conclusions on the par each piece. There's some truth in each of the pieces, 
but no one synthesized them all together yet. And we need to do that, and uh, that process uh, sooner the better. But uh, better to take a little longer and get it right than to dive off and say, here's here it is, and then you're going to try to impose this your position as a moral imperative on other Christians, uh, burden their conscience. We better have that right before we burden the conscience of anybody, Christian or non-Christian, right? And so uh, the, all the data has not been put together. After 20 centuries, 21 centuries almost, we have not put all this data together properly. And sometimes the data is growing faster than we can see it. But if we have a good, strong foundation, we'll be in a good position. That's the other point. It's kind of without excuse. We have this wonderful foundation of sanctified scholarship that we could start from to answer the question, and sometimes we only take a piece of it and run, uh, and, and it's not going to be adequate to the task. It's a big, big question, and it deserves a big, big answer developed on across all aspects of what the Bible has to say to it. All right, so that's uh, probably beaten that uh, horse uh, to death there. Second question, are vocation and calling the same thing? Are they different from one's job? Well, vocation and calling, we have certainly, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, right? But he was also a tent maker. So vocationally, he was a tent maker. I myself am a software engineer. That would be my vocation. My avocation would be a symphonic composer. But my calling would be as a lay theologian working uh, on behalf of the Chalcedon Foundation. So there's a distinction between them. You can have both simultaneously. They, they don't have to conflict with one another. Uh, they can be running in parallel, and Paul preferred that they ran in parallel. They gave him some advantages, as he saw it, to have a vocation on the one hand and a calling on the other, and he could discharge both faithfully. Uh, there are quite a few people who are pastors who actually have a day job, if you will, uh, and there are quite a few lay theologians out there who were, did something else entirely. <laughs> uh, if I remember right, Dr. Lorraine Bettner actually worked for the IRS for a while, and yet he's one of the most noted Reformed theologians. Certainly he was good at um, synthesizing and collating a bunch of material from other sources and popularizing it so we would have the benefit of, say, three centuries worth of Calvinistic thinking uh, in an easy-to-digest form. And so that was his calling, but his vocation was working with library science and also, um, if I remember, the IRS, for which I'm sure God has forgiven him. Now, is there a difference between temperament and disposition? Is it correct to write off someone's behavior to genetics? Uh, temperament actually comes from a um, fairly pagan understanding of man, the four humors, the four temperaments, um, melancholy, choleric, and uh, sanguine, and whatever the other one was. Uh, and the uh, the issue is that they tried to explain that you have all these uh, temperaments and they are in a certain balance with each other. Each one's got a unique balance of temperaments and they determine your nation. So what we have here is, interestingly enough, a form of pagan determinism. The, the temperaments are supposed to determine what you're like. Uh, and uh, one way that Christians try to um, co-opt this relatively pagan idea is to say, well, Jesus... Was, had equal temperaments. He was the only balanced person where all the temperaments were in balance one with another. Uh, but we might as well just be talking about uh, astrological things uh, as much as with temperaments or various psychological profiles. These are all deterministic ways to try to get our arms around something that is uh, misses the boat entirely because man is as he does. Uh, and this is where the problem comes in, is that if you are a, determined by your temperaments, you are a victim again. 
you are not a responsible party, but the scripture paints all of us as responsible individuals. And so the notion that the temperament can be used to excuse things or a disposition, a disposition simply means that one thing is easier for someone than something else. Uh, I am more disposed to want to listen to Bach than Led Zeppelin, and that's simply because I don't have any Led Zeppelin here and I have a lot of Bach there. Uh, so the disposition would be the preference. I'm disposed in a certain way. So, uh, but the temperament notion is, is interesting again because it's a it represents a form of trying to pin someone down and put you in a box, pigeonhole you, uh, and that way you can always use it as an excuse. Well, my I'm, I'm a uh, I'm a melancholy person or what have you, and uh, therefore, boom, it becomes your excuse. It's your calling card. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm introspective. That's why I'm this. That's why I fly off the handle. But the scriptures say that you are to control your spirit, right? The man who controls his spirit is mightier than he that takes a city. So under scriptural understanding, responsibility trumps any such thing that might be in your constitution. Now, you might be shaped by other forces around you, but you also have responsibility for what your conduct is. You know, you are not merely being formed externally. You also, out of the treasure of your own heart, come all the issues of life. And so I'm always hesitant when people talk about temperaments, knowing one, its origin in, in pagan thinking, and two, the use of it as an excuse for conduct. We are all before the throne of God, the face of God, Coram Deo, as they say, and we're all answerable to him. And this notion of you made me thus is not going to fly. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> the vessel that questions the potter, why have you made me thus, that doesn't work. Jeremiah points it out, Romans 9, following, uh, continues that line of argumentation. Uh, who are thou, art man, to reply against your maker? So even if temperaments exist, and even if they have an influence on you, the influence of the word of God is supposed to supersede all of that. That's what makes someone a Christian, is that he responds to God's word, because it's quickened to him through the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole different ballgame than someone who's simply going with it, the flow of whatever uh, his predilections indicate. So let's be careful about using the notions of temperament, even if it looks like, oh, there's an explanation why Jesus was such a perfect man. He was all his four temperaments in balance. I might as well say he had all his kundalini chakras in balance and then invoke uh, Hindu paganism. What good is that? Uh, I, don't, I put them both in the same camp. Uh, just because one might have a little more credibility uh, does not mean that it's better. It simply means there are different degrees of bad. So we should look clearly and say, man made in the image of God. Men made in the image of the first man who sinned. You know, we're like Adam. So this is what our actual investment is, and God holds us responsible no matter what. So we cannot manage without excuse. That's laid out by Romans 1, without excuse. So arguments about the, the temperaments and how they're um, working in us, uh, it needs to be set aside. Now, if we're simply talking about personal temperament versus discussion of the four temperaments, uh, of paganism, and that's again saying that's my uh, personality type. I tend to be one type A, type B, uh, and these various uh, laid-back, chill kind of guy versus very anxious or tentative, blah blah, whatever the the case may be. Uh, God can certainly use these variations. He didn't make us all the same way. Each of us has different strengths. In this instance, we have the case of the the eye doesn't hear and the ear doesn't see, but each works together and brings a strength. So sometimes in these instances. They, they have a, used in that sense, not in the pagan sense, but in the sense of different giftings uh, and different ways of looking at reality, 
uh, different, um, you know, someone might have a, uh, the gift of uh, compassion and empathy and therefore and helps as they call it and that becomes very different their personality type would be very pretty different than someone who's got a diff gift for example of teaching or of administrations and things like that that might be a different way of sense but when most people talk about temperaments uh, they are referring to the four temperaments and their balance uh, the humors if you will in the body uh, in the old sense and uh, we don't have to kowtow to that primarily because man is a unity, as Rashtuni points out. All right, verse, uh, question four. Are there limits to Jesus' words, be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves? Isn't it possible to turn this into the ends justify the means? Now, the only way that you can get to the ends justify the means is if we leave out the last half of the verse, because he didn't say, be shrewd as serpents, period. That's not the way, the way the verse reads, right? It's now out of context at that point, be shrewd as serpents. I know a little bit about the shrewdness of serpents because they have rattlesnakes that live around our property, and I and I observe them how they stake out the uh, the rodent um, habitats, and how they sneak around and how they hide themselves where the rodents have no idea that they're there because they are utterly motionless and camouflaged, and at the last second it's the end for the rodent and it becomes dinner. So the shrewdness, and that simply is to, in terms of how they uh, arrive and deal with the environment that they're in. But Jesus doesn't just say, be shrewd as serpents. He says, and innocent as doves. And I don't just mean that innocent in the sense of innocent-looking, sweet little dove, harmless, but also in the sense of literally innocent. You know, we're not to have any charge against us. So it doesn't mean, there's not an invitation for us to be serpentine in our conduct, um, but rather that the shrewdness of the serpent is applicable. Notice how Paul uses this when he says, I'm a Roman citizen. He pulls the Roman citizen card out at just the right moment to change, shift the entire uh, uh, crowd in a different direction. One is aware that you know, they're doing something to a Roman citizen. So there's going to be some wisdom there. Or proclaiming, I'm on the trial because of the resurrection of the dead. That's wisdom. But it was an innocent statement insofar as it went. It, but, but it's also true, see? And so he didn't lie, and he used these truths in a very shrewd way uh, to shift the playing field in ways that he believed would be beneficial to the gospel. That's the way we can go to. But I don't believe that it ever gets to the ends justifies the means because it's a package deal. You must be both shrewd and innocent. Both uh, dove-like, the dove is a symbol of peace, obviously, and the Holy Spirit, and is indicative of, of something positive in which there is no nothing evil in it. And so our shrewdness must have no evil component to it. It must be all tended toward the good. So, you know, if someone tries to push it to, well, we're going to do this because we're told to be sh um, shrewd as serpents, you say, uh, 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 but what about the innocent as doves part? Everything balances out in Scripture. That's not just a nuance. That is a corrective and a balancing counterpart, and then one without the other doesn't work. It then becomes an excuse, but you have to knife the verse in half to get there. And the final question that came online, Hello, thanks for your podcast. Would you be willing to discuss so-called redemptive historical preaching along with its strengths and or weaknesses? I looked uh, this up. It's interesting to me. To me, the way it is um, being promoted, it looks much more like interpretive maximalism. In fact, they actually believe that that's a good term for it. They just don't like being tied to certain theologians who are marked as interpretive maximalists. But they use and cite the exact same verses as the interpretive maximalists use. Um, these clauses, and in the road to Emmaus, when Christ is talking to the two disciples and sharing with them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. 
And this is treated as, this one verse is treated as the key to unlocking all of Scripture, which is to say that every single Old Testament verse applies somehow to Christ, and you need to preach the Christ in it. Now, the downside of this, is, of course, is that there is no more ethical instruction. It's all prophetic, eschatological, and redemptive, historical. Everything in the Old Testament is seen as pointing strictly to Christ at all times. And if you're not preaching Christ out of it, you know, you're getting only an ethical message like, uh, don't, do not kill, or uh, don't uh, excuse a dead after this period of time, whatever the law might be, uh, thou shalt not steal, uh, those things are not really the purpose of that law. The purpose of that law, that verse, is to point to Christ in some, some way, shape, or form. So what happens then is that, and they say that we need to have a creative reading of all scriptures. Boy, if there's anything that sounds dangerous to me is that we're going to be creative in interpreting scriptures. That opens the floodgates to all sorts of things, and to allegorizings, to fanciful speculations. And uh, that's a hazardous thing to go to. So it has some benefits insofar as, yes, there is Christ manifested in the Old Testament. No question about it. But if you say that's the only thing that needs to be extracted, now we've done our duty, is to, and the Old Testament otherwise can be set aside, it is simply pointing to Christ and that's it. What happens to all the law of God? Therefore, it is pitted against a, the law of God as a result of it, and therefore we can come into a very true kingdom-oriented uh, point of view using this approach to Scripture versus, say, the grammatical, historical, and other passage ways of it, handling Scripture. Now, in my view, the preacher, uh, Rushton actually did the discussion about bad preaching. And I don't know if Ground Can Control can um, find it or not and post it, but it's a fascinating discussion where the text is, Man, your house is on fire. And Dr. Rushton walks through the various ways of approaching this text. And I hate to tell you this, but the redemptive historical um, approach to that text would be one of the ones that Rushton would have criticized because it would have not resulted in the correct action. And the correct action is, man, your house is on fire and we need to go put it out. And uh, so action is actually called for in that text as opposed to all the other false approaches to preaching uh, that stink, as he puts. So to, uh, I don't want to go so far as to say it stinks. Now, here's where it gets interesting. They say the father of their position is Gerhardus Vos, and his biblical theology is an example of it. Well, the biblical theology of Vos, and have it on the shelf, is an excellent volume. Uh, if it weren't for a slight amillennial tilt, it would be almost a perfect volume in many regards. Uh, and so it's to be highly respected. So now they say, this is our, our core. But I believe they go far, far past. Yeah, there it is, contemporary preaching. Thank you. <laughs> Ground control's on top of things. I love it. I love my people. My people. And so the uh, this, this essence is, um, is problematic when you get down to it with this kind of teaching. Uh, when we go go down this path, and they mention a whole bunch of seminaries that uh, follow through with this, uh, we have a problem. Now, Vos has been, uh, everyone wants to have Dr. Vos as someone that they can name drop because it gives you credibility. But I think they go so far afield from where Dr. Vos started, uh, going in directions that they say, well, this is what was incipient or nascent in him. He was a proto-redemptive uh, historical guy. In fact, he, led, he showed us how to do it. Well, I don't believe it's the case that he necessarily said that you can evacuate the entire Old Testament of ethical instruction because his disciple, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, did not see it that way. Dr. Van Til believed that the Old Testament ethics were concerned about the program of the destruction of evil in our world and God's program and how that's to be done with men doing it. That we're just, you got the evil in ourselves, and then once that's handled, then we work with the, with the evil in our society 
and do with it as God tells us to do with it. And that's where Dr. Cornelius Van Til has a very strong ethical component. That's why he even wrote a volume on Christian theistic ethics. If Dr. Vos came anywhere near the position that is alleged for him, Van Til would have gone in a different direction. He does not. So uh, I, I have a lot of problems with redemptive historical teaching to the extent that it veers all the way to interpretive maximalism. I have no objection to finding the Christ in the Old Testament. I think uh, we, there's a good place to look, but don't suddenly say, therefore, we can omit, uh, having extracted the Christ, any other teaching in the Old Testament can be set aside because it's secondary, tertiary, or, or meaningless, because it only existed, it's a reason to the reason it existed is only to show us Christ, and then we can drop the Old Testament text and not have any uh, recourse to it. What happens to Matthew 5.19? You know, he who shall uh, keep and do, teach and do, the least of these commandments. It has nothing to do with the, it. Didn't say whosoever will be able to find the Christ in the least of the commandments shall be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It didn't say that. It said whosoever shall teach and do them. And you cannot teach and do something uh, because the doing, of course, isn't ethical. It talks about moral imperatives, and that's what God's law is. There's a bunch of moral imperatives, obligations, and duties, and responsibilities laid upon men made in His image who have rebelled against Him, and now through the Holy Spirit are seeking to go back to Him. Uh, to be bound back to God, and to follow Him, and uh, and to be like Him, if you will, um, by following what Christ did. So, we're going to be in a world of hurt if we take some of these things at full value, the uh, redemptive historical stuff. Uh, and you don't have to go all the way off the deep end to interpretive maximalism in its worst cases to already have softened the Old Testament and made it uh, irrelevant except as it points to Christ. There's nothing on a certain point in the Christ, but if you then pull out all the rest of the content, then you've denatured it, and you've uh, squeezed something out of it artificial at that point. You know, it's one thing if it's a prophecy about the Christ, you know, the man whose name is the branch, you know, Zechariah 3, 8, say. But then if you look at the other ethical teaching in Zechariah, you're going to miss uh, what he's trying to tell the people, because the people's problem wasn't that they weren't seeing the Christ in what the prophet was saying. They weren't obeying what the prophet was saying. And this is what got them into trouble, because God voice was coming through the prophet. Okay, let's see here. New question. By the way, ground control, is this the first question or is it just a new question? I'll scroll back up if there's earlier one I didn't miss. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Can this apply to changing one's gender, either surgically, hormonally, or via appearance? Uh, certainly what is going on here is uh, uh, an attempt to take a, a scripture and then say, Due to the scripture, due to the scripture, or apply the scripture, the principle that Paul applies in to Deuteronomy twenty-five four about uh, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain. From here, he extends that to thou shalt not steal, and you shall certainly not. Uh, you, shall, you shall go out of your way to bless those who minister in the ministry of the word uh, with uh, a financial um, blessing upon them, so that they don't they are not treading out the grain working in the gospel and not having any of the benefits that come to, uh, that should come with it. So, okay, that's the first question, good. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the problem that's being pitched by this question is, can we take this verse, uh, when God speaks, uh, it's actually Jesus saying this, uh, in, the, in respect to the divorce question, and can we apply it and treat it the same that Paul treats Deuteronomy 25.4? And I believe there is a sense in which it is true. Remember, I, last week we went through the verse 
verse 99th verse of Psalm 119. I've seen an end to all perfection, but that commandment is exceeding broad. So the commandments of God are broad. They, they apply to everything. They can, in fact, oftentimes be safely extended uh, with wisdom uh, and where we can see that the thing that it's applying to makes sense, that it's, a, it's analogous to it, uh, sufficiently so that the principle in the one applies to the other. This is what Paul does. He says, did God, when he says, thou shalt not treasure, uh, muzzle the ox, or treasure not the grain, did he say this altogether just for the sake of the oxen or for our sakes? He says, I say, for our sakes. So to here, when Christ is saying, there's a basic principle that also would apply, and this has to do actually more specifically, that God has arranged or put something together a certain way. Uh, let no man put asunder. Now, let us take a look at another question. Why would we not then say, well, this baby was born with a cleft palate? What God has put together this way, let no man change, right? Oh, spina bifida, we don't want to clean that up because God made... So the problem is, to what extent is God the author of these um, birth defects, say, that we would naturally go and say, no, we're going to do the operation and repair the cleft palate, we're going to fix the spina bifida, and we're going to deal with these uh, birth defects. And we would say, it's not so much that God directly created them, but rather that man, sin creates this frustration, this um, this referred to in um, this futility in the creation from Romans 8, 19 to 23 that will ultimately be overcome toward the end of the age. But in the meantime, uh, we do have the effects of sin in the world and it mars us even physically. Uh, and this is what's at, at stake here. So there's a difference between fixing a cleft palate versus shifting someone surgically from one gender to another particularly arbitrarily. If someone is literally born with a birth defect where they have both the um, uh, male and the female um, apparatuses, uh, and at that point, and that's a known, known uh, form of birth defect, it does not make sense for them to be kept perpetually in that, in that um, unstable state between the two. Uh, so it may make sense at some point to say surgically we'll need to move in one direction or the other. But that's a special case, and I'm not even sure. I, I believe the Journal of Biblical Ethics and Medicine, which I give the link to, speaks to this particular issue several times in the course of it. So I uh, refer the reader to their discussion, not my hasty or um, potentially faulty recollection of it. So I'm trying to direct you to resources that I might not have at my fingertips. My memory is limited. But the point is it's, it's dealt with. Uh, and we would then have that uh, the hermaphroditism um, problem could be solved. And then we would treat that as the same thing as a cleft palate or um, a spinal bifida. There is a problem where there's an excess of one or the other, and we can resolve this in favor of one. And therefore, we make a, someone's going to have to make that decision somewhere along the line. Now, in this instance, uh, when we're talking about surgically changing a hormonally being appearance, uh, then we're saying, well, God, I am fully this, but I am now going to... Uh, alter and dictate and control, this is the thing we're going to talk about tomorrow with Mythology of Science at the Book of the Month Club, science is going to now allow us to control something that was normally something that God controlled. When God made them male or female, uh, at that point we would say, uh, I'm a female but I'm going to make myself a male, or I'm going to have the doctors convert me from a, a male to a female. Uh, and with all the, the changes, so I'm going to take these hormones and they're going to make my body respond in this way. Um, there's a tremendous amount of artifice here, and it's not to correct, it's to change. There's a difference between the um, fixing of a cleft palate, which is to correct a defect, a birth defect, 
um, uh, versus changing something, a healthy human being that's a male into a healthy, into, I'm not so sure, a healthy female. Uh, certainly a female that was created by, this, by science and control, the attempt to control, to make man take control of man, one man take control of another man. And so at that point, it's like Dr. Rashtuni says in the book, Mythology of Science, the new guinea pig is man himself. You know, it's, it's um, because science exists, its domain is the experimental and it'll continue to experiment and see what kind of boundaries it can push. And everything that we say is a barrier to science, barrier to science says, well, we'll figure out a way to break the barrier. Uh, we, that restriction, that limitation, all limits are off, no limits to science. When we try to rein in science and say you should have ethical considerations for in bioethics, they say, what for? You know, science does not answer to another standard. Science is its own standard, its own reason for existing. Yes. How are we doing on time, ground control? You're, you're putting things up that suggest we're really done, <laughs> and I have no idea. Are we um, close to finished, or have we exceeded our time allotment? Have we uh, um, tried the patience of all our viewers today? Ground control will tell me in a moment. We are done. We are done like a Christmas turkey, folks. It's always good to be with everyone. I'm sorry that the first question dragged on so long, but it was a very important question. It's kind of a question where if you answer it wrong, you're in trouble. And we wanted to lay out the conditions and the foundations for a proper answer and to uh, exhort us to work together toward arriving at that. Uh, setting aside our prejudices, even if they're well-founded. It may be that you know, people in a certain case will be vindicated. But we want to get there the right way, not with a quick and dirty approach to scripture, uh, but rather considered one. So we've got a lot of groundwork to do. We should not be afraid of the, the Bible and applying its truths across the board. And that's what we're here to do at Calcedon is to unleash the Word of God and to exhort and invite all of us to work together toward understanding it better and propagating that understanding to the next generation so they won't have the kind of problems we'll have and that we suffer from. So to that end, we'll see you all next week and um, pray for Calcedon and the fires and pray that they stay far away from the facility. Uh, and then we will see and... Hopefully next week we have a good report. On because uh, when you say a fire is only five percent contained, it's not contained. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q and A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.